0: Well, we've all heard advertising claims, we've all heard campaign pledges and promises that offered more than the promiser could really deliver. Truth be told, there have been times when we've all been guilty of making promises that we weren't able to keep. I've heard it said, the only person who makes more bombastic promises than a politician is a young man proposing marriage to his sweetheart. Probably so. Some promises are just too good to be true, yet God made a promise, and He repeated it throughout the Old Testament, a promise that for centuries was held suspect by Bible scholars and by theologians. God promised that He would return the Jews from the four corners of the earth back to their land, that He would regather them to the land He gave to Abraham and that he would reestablish his kingdom. And for centuries, respected Christian scholarship scoffed at such an idea. Roman Catholic theologians assumed that God was through with the nation Israel. They spiritualized God's promises to the Jews, and they applied them to the church. And yet a few faithful voices dared to take the Bible literally. The Puritans, some of the Reformers, were early advocates of a Jewish restoration. They wrote of, quote, the calling of the Jews. Of course, it turns out God's promises to the Jews was not too good to be true. After 19 centuries of waiting, that promise is being fulfilled today before our very eyes. Modern Zionism is bringing Jews from all around the world back to their ancient homeland, the land of Israel. One cynic author wrote, Magnificent promises are always to be held suspect, that is, unless those promises come from our God. He is faithful to His Word, as we'll see tonight. Well, Ezekiel chapter 36 begins, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Here in one sentence, the prophet Ezekiel capsulizes 1900 years of Jewish history. This is a time period known as the Diaspora, or the dispersion. It's a period in Jewish history. The Jewish Diaspora begins with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. Like the Babylonians of old, six centuries earlier, Rome sacked the city burned the Jewish temple, then took its treasures back to Rome. In the process, they killed a million Jews. The final few Jews died at Masada near the Dead Sea. The rest of the Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And for the last 1900 years, the Jews have lived as strangers in strange lands. The wandering Jew, as history calls them have gone from country to country, seeking a place where they were welcome, a home where the Jew and his countrymen could live out their religion in peace, but to no avail. Everywhere the Jews have gone, they've encountered prejudice and hatred and persecution. And tragically, whether living under the Muslim crescent or under the Christian cross, their plight has been pretty much similar. In 135 A.D., Roman Emperor Hadrian, he made it a capital offense to practice Judaism. In 339, Constantius II made it illegal for Jews to intermarry with Christians. In 438 A.D., Theodosius II banned Jews from holding high office in the Roman world. In 630 A.D., the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius led a massacre of Jews who had re-entered Jerusalem to settle the city. Over and over, the Roman Empire persecuted the Jews. And yet, as the church's persecutor, as the Jews' persecutor, the Roman Empire passed from the pages of history, it's interesting, Jewish society lived on. In 1066 AD, though, Muslim rulers of Granada in Spain slaughtered 4,000 Jews in a single day. In 1149, the Berbers, living in Spain, gave the Jews a choice, either convert to Islam or die. In 1096, Pope Urban II ordered the First Crusade to rid the Holy Land of the Muslims. Sadly, though, as the Crusaders traveled to Israel, they practiced their fighting on the Jews. As they killed Jews, as they burned synagogues, they assumed they were doing God a favor by ridding the world of the Christ-killers. The church has much to repent for over its treatment of the Jews. In 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, the Roman Catholic Church ordered the Jews to wear a badge distinguishing them from Christians. This both segregated the Jews and exposed them to scorn. This is actually what Hitler ended up imitating during the 1930s and 40s. In 1290, the Jews were ordered out of England In 1306, they were banished from France. In 1483, Torquemada brought the Inquisition to Spain, and thousands of Jews were slaughtered. In 1660, Jews in Europe were falsely blamed for spreading the Black Plague. And all over Europe, panic-stricken people spilled Jewish blood in retaliation for what were obviously lies. And sadly, the Diaspora goes on and on, reaching a crescendo in the early 20th century with the rise of Nazism and the spread of anti-Semiticism all across Europe. You see, in choosing Israel for special privileges, God also chose her for special responsibilities. He made a covenant with the Hebrew people. He promised them enormous blessing if they kept His law. But he would curse them to the same degree if they rebelled against his covenant. And sadly, rebel they did. Their rebellion came to a head when they rejected God's Son, our Lord Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they stood at Pilate's judgment hall. And you remember what they cried out? His blood be on our hands and on our children. And it has been for the last 1900 years. In the Fiddler on the Roof. Have you seen the Fiddler on the Roof? Did you see the movie? Did you see the play? In the Fiddler on the Roof, the old Jew, Teve, he prays this prayer. I know, I know, we are the chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose somebody else? Once there was a Jewish rabbi. He appeared before the Spanish monarchs, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. He said this. You cannot curse us, for there is a blessing on us. And you cannot bless us, for there is a curse on us. In other words, it wasn't Spain that had power over the Jews. It was God behind the scenes, pulling the strings, controlling the Jews' destiny. And for 1,900 years, God has chosen to chasten His people Israel. God has stood silent as He watched them endure the pogroms and the horrors of ghetto life, even the Holocaust. As Ezekiel said of the Jews here in verse 3, you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you were slandered by the people. Yet all the while, God's promise of restoration kept echoing in the background. For Ezekiel continues, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that had been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. And as God dispersed His people Israel, He brought desolation on their land. During the 400 years of Arab rule, during the next 800 years of Turkish rule, the land of Israel was never resettled. In 1881, only 300,000 people lived in all of Israel, compared to over 2 million people during Roman times. And most of those people weren't settled. They were nomads, Bedouins. Under the Arabs and the Turks, the land was mistreated. Vast forests that in biblical times were covered by trees were denuded. The land was stripped bare. At one point, Turkish rulers placed a tax on a landowner's trees, making it economically advantageous for him to cut down all his trees. This hastened the destruction and desolation of the land. Over time, Israel's fertile terraces had eroded. Her rich farmland had turned into either swamps or desert. The ecological cycle was so disrupted that the rains, which once watered the land, actually dried up. Mark Twain made a visit to Palestine in 1867, and he described the land as follows. Where where prosperity has reigned and fallen, where glory had flamed and gone out, where beauty has dwelt and passed away, where gladness was and sorrow is, where the pomp of life has been, and silence and death brood in its high places, there the reptile makes its home and mocks human vanity. To this region, one of the biblical prophecies is applied I will bring the land to desolation. No man can stand in this land and say the prophecy has not been fulfilled. God did bring desolation on the land as he scattered the Jews among the nations. And then verse 5, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Of the nations who took the land that God gave to Israel for themselves, he mentions Edom specifically. Edom could here be a reference, reference to Israel's arch enemies today, the Arabs. Today, Arabs accuse the Jews of stealing the land from the Palestinians. But the truth is, is that before the Jews returned, the land was largely unwanted by anyone. It was desolate. It was void. It was a desert. It was untilled and uncultivated and basically worthless. And yet now that the Jews have turned the deserted land into a fruitful garden, the Arabs suddenly have claimed it as their own. You know, it's interesting. Israel's six million Jews occupy an area less than 8,000 square miles. That's about the size of New Jersey. Six million Jews occupy a state the size of New Jersey, about half the size of Switzerland. Whereas their Arab neighbors number 150 million, and they live on 5 million square miles of land. And yet for some reason, the Arabs can't find room for the Palestinians. They want the Jews to give up their land to them. Perhaps this is part of what's inflaming God's burning jealousy here in verse 5. He goes on, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Now realize the Jews and their rabbis, who over the years were forcibly removed from the land. They've never relinquished their claim on the land of Israel or abandoned hope of returning. As a matter of fact, the heart cry of the Diaspora Jew is found in Psalm 137 verse 5 where he cries out, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The Jewish Talmud, or the Traditions of the Jews, has a passage in it that reads, Whosoever dwells outside the land of Israel is considered to have no God. They obviously maintained the goal of returning to their land. The Jews never relinquished their claim on the land. They always had the hope of returning to the land that God had given them. As a matter of fact, one of the great Hebrew prophets, Yehuda Halevi, who lived in Toledo, Spain in 1100 AD? He wrote a poem entitled Ode to Zion, Zion meaning Jerusalem. It reads as follows O city of the world, that is Jerusalem, with sacred splendor blessed, my spirit yearns to thee from out of the far off west. Had I eagle's wings, straight would I fly to thee, moisten thy hot dust with cheeks streaming free. In the east, in the east is my heart, and I dwell at the end of the west. How shall I join in your feasting? How shall I share in your jest? How shall my offerings be paid, my vows with performance be crowned, while Zion pineth in Edom's bonds, and I am spent in Arabs bound? All the beauties and treasures of Spain are worthless as dust in mine eyes. But the dust of the Lord's ruined house as a treasury of beauty I prize. The Jews have always longed to return home, have made it their goal to return to the land of Israel. From a human standpoint, the dream of a Jewish homeland and the regathering of the diaspora Jews became a reality largely through the influence of a man named Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism. Herzl was a journalist who happened to be covering a story in France when he witnessed a French mob erupt in violence and they began to shout, Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews! And he concluded that day that the only hope for Jewish survival was an independent Jewish state. Herzl founded the Zionist organization and he began encouraging Jews to return to their ancient homeland of Israel. In 1881, there were 25,000 Jews in Palestine. By 1914, there were over 100,000. And and Ezekiel prophesied of this return many, many years previously. Here he blesses the land with fruit. And notice why. For they are about to come, and come they have. Verse 9. For indeed I am with you, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. God will turn back to the land. It will be tilled. It will be sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings, and then you shall know. That I am the Lord. God has promised to bless the land of Israel, and this is exactly what has happened. We've seen it come true in our generation, Ezekiel's prophecy. Hastened by the Holocaust, Israel became a nation again in 1948, and since that time, Jews have continued to immigrate to Israel. In 1950, the Israeli Knesset or parliament. Enacted a law known as the Law of Return. The Law of Return states that the moment a Jew arrives and sets foot down on Israeli territory, they become an official citizen of Israel. And every day at Ben Gurion Airport, there in Tel Aviv, you can watch Jewish exiles return to Israel. They're weeping, they're joyous, they're weeping for joy, they're kissing the ground. They're thankful that they're back home, that the prophecies have been fulfilled. When we read Ezekiel 36, we realize that we are seeing a 2,500 year old prophecy unfold before our very eyes. And with this massive ingathering of Jews, notice what else Ezekiel promises that fields will be tilled, crops will be sown, cities will be rebuilt. People and livestock will multiply. This land will be better than in former times. And again, that's what we've seen happen in our day. Even an elaborate reforestation plan has been enacted in Israel. Do you know that over 240 million trees have been planted since the Jews have returned to their land? This has curbed the erosion. It's added nutrients to the soil. It's helped them to eliminate the swamps. As a matter of fact, the first Israeli prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, once said, He who plants a tree plants a future. When you visit Israel today, you can donate to plant a tree, if you like. Well, In verse 12, the promise of blessing continues. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, You devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord God. Israel will no longer be an object of ridicule, but will stand tall among the nations. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it in their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations. He's recounting the history now. And they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, which they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your your sake, O house of Israel but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. God's restoration of the Jews and their land was not deserved by the Jews. Their goodness had nothing to do with God's blessing. Everywhere they had gone, they they had erected idols and had rebelled against the Lord. No, He blessed them and He promises to bless them in the future for His own name's sake, to bring Himself glory. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in, in you before their eyes. In many ways, the idolatry of Judah had given God's reputation a black eye. But when he regathers the Jews, he says, and establishes with them a new covenant, he's going to bring glory. To his great name. And this is what Ezekiel now promises in the next few verses. This passage and others like it, as in Jeremiah chapter 31, are identified as God's new covenant with Israel. Ezekiel lays out the new covenant in verses 24 through 28. He says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now remember, at the time, the recipients of this covenant were living in exile. They were all captives in Babylon. And yet at their darkest hour, God shines in his brightest light. At their very lowest, God makes to them this incredible promise. You know, this past week, if you're following the sports, the Braves canned their manager. And it was expected. Our Braves are on the pace to lose more games than any other team in the history of baseball. It's just hard to be a Braves fan these days. I guess something had to be done to shake up the team. So Freddie got fired. But what if at this Historically low juncture for the Braves, the brass all got together and the, the brain trust got together and decided to give Freddie Gonzalez more money. Rather than fire him, more incentives. Rather than canning him, give him a brand new contract. What would you think? You'd think they'd gone mad, that they were crazy. And this was probably Ezekiel's reaction to the covenant that God promised to the Jews. Ezekiel expected God to fire his people. They've been committed idolatry. They've been exiled to Babylon. He figured that they would, he would finally just throw up his hands and say, enough with you guys. Instead, God re-ups their contract. In fact, he gives them a new contract, a better deal, a more lucrative contract. And he calls it the New Covenant. This New Covenant promises Israel three huge blessings. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. This is a key to understanding the rest of the Bible. He promises them a regathering to their land. Secondly, a spiritual regeneration. And then third, the reestablishment of his earthly kingdom to Israel. The new covenant consists of three promises. The regathering of the Jews to their land, a regeneration of their hearts, and a reestablishment of God's kingdom to the earth. First, the regathering of the Jews to the land, verse 24, lays it out. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then comes the second part of the new covenant, the spiritual regeneration, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments. Remember, the Old Covenant consisted of a set of rules, the law, the commandments. And the pressure, obviously, when you're under a law, the pressure's on you to obey that law, to live up to the rules. It was up to Israel to perform, to keep the law. Ultimately, God was proving that we couldn't do it on our own, that the very best human efforts are never enough to measure up to God's perfect standards. This is why the Old Covenant failed. The Jews were unable to keep it. But the New Covenant works differently. For rather than be based on man's performance, under the New Covenant, God does all the work. You see, the Old Covenant was back-breaking. The New Covenant is knee-bending. Under the New Covenant, we trust God and His Spirit works in us. It's not about our performance. It's about God's work in us. Realize at the heart of man's problem is a problem in his heart. Our basic instinct is sin. We're sinners by nature. There's rebellion inside each of us. See, it's not sinning that makes you a sinner. We sin because we are a sinner. So often we focus on the symptoms but the real problem is deeper. Reminds me of the old man used to stand up in church every Sunday and he'd say, Oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Finally, one Sunday, a younger guy stood up right after him and he prayed, Lord, forget about the cobwebs. Just kill the spider. And this is what the new covenant addresses. It gets below the symptoms. It deals with the real source of our sin, which is in our hearts our rebellious nature. Here we're told that the Holy Spirit cleanses us. In the manner of the Jewish priest, God's Spirit sprinkles clean water on our hearts. He cleanses us from the inside out by removing that old nature and He plants within us a new nature. Ezekiel says that God will put His Spirit within us, that He takes out our heart of stone and He replaces it with a soft heart, a heart of flesh. See, before we came to Jesus, our heart was cold and callous and stubborn. But when you believe in Jesus and yield your life to Him and receive His Spirit, you're given a soft, insensitive, and repentant heart. Under the new covenant, God takes out our defiant heart and He replaces it with a compliant heart. He takes out our defiance and replaces it with compliance. A Christian's most basic instinct now is to love God and to love others. But the new covenant includes one more promise. Not only a regathering, not only a regeneration of our hearts, but also the reestablishing of God's kingdom on the earth. Notice verse 28. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. As in the days of old, God will rule over Israel in their ancient home. Now realize, when the Jews returned from Babylon, they saw it, many of them saw it, as a fulfillment of the regathering of this new covenant. They're coming back from Babylon. They're returning to the land, just as Ezekiel had predicted. And they were excited about the reestablishment of God's kingdom. This is why they wanted to make Jesus a king. This is why there was a a group of zealots within the nation who wanted to overthrow Rome and establish a a new government, put a Jew as the king, bring the kingdom of God to the earth. They were excited about the reestablishment of God's kingdom. They were back in the land. This kingdom is to be reestablished. The Jews were excited. And this is what Nicodemus had in his mind when he made that nighttime visit to Jesus. Remember, Nicodemus was a rabbi. Nicodemus knew the new covenant inside and out. He was familiar with the scriptures. He understood that the kingdom of God was on the horizon. And he wanted to know about this kingdom. And Jesus knew what he was thinking. That's why Jesus opens the dialogue by saying to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus had seen the regathering of the Jews to Israel, and he was expecting the kingdom of God to be established on earth. But the new covenant, remember, had a second clause, a middle clause, and that was a spiritual regeneration, a new birth in the hearts of God's people. Perhaps Nicodemus mistook the zeal of the Pharisees for this regeneration. Maybe he thought that the nation had already been regenerated. But Jesus says that the new covenant is more than just conforming to the law. It's the transformation of our hearts. It's the getting of a new nature. We become born again spiritually. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. He quickens in us the life of God. God wanted to give to Israel the kingdom. The Jews had been regathered. Jesus died to regenerate them. In fact, you remember on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took the cup. And you remember what he said? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus was thinking of the new covenant that night. The problem, though, is that the proud Jews didn't see their need for a new heart, to be born again. And yet they should have known. They should have seen the need. In fact, Jesus asked Nicodemus, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? He kind of rebuked him for not knowing. When he explained the new birth to Rabbi Nicodemus, Jesus said, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. Why did he say water and of the Spirit? Well, those are the two things right here that Ezekiel mentions. Ezekiel describes the miracle of the new covenant as the sprinkling of clean water on our hearts and as the gift of the Spirit. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. Jesus was taking Rabbi Nicodemus back to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's interesting, fast forward a few months after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In Acts 3 verse 19, There, Peter preaches the gospel to the Jewish leaders, and I believe in his sermon, he references the new covenant and the coming of God's kingdom. In fact, he actually invites them to receive the kingdom. He says to the Jews, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, why? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things. They had been regathered to the land. Had they repented that day at the preaching of the gospel, they would have been regenerated, which would have then opened up the door for Jesus to return and reestablish his kingdom. It could have all happened. In 32 AD, when Peter preached the gospel to the Jewish leaders. Sadly, though, the Jews rejected his message. They refused to embrace Jesus and thus the kingdom didn't come. Instead, God offered the gospel to the Gentiles. And for the last 1900 years, God has overseen a great harvest of souls and he's building up his church of redeemed And transform Gentiles, which includes you and me. And yet the provisions of this new covenant remain. And they are intended for Israel, for the Jews. And I believe in the last days, God will turn His attention back to the Jewish people. Once the church is raptured, Israel will repent. And they'll believe in Jesus. And God will take out their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Romans 11 verse 26 reads, "All Israel will be saved." In fact, Isaiah 11:11 11, 11 makes a phenomenal promise. It says, "It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again, a second time to recover the remnant of his people. He will set his hand a second time. The first time he brought the Jews back to, to Israel, they came from Babylon. The second time We're seeing it come to pass before our very eyes in these last days. And these regathered Jews will put their faith in Jesus. Zechariah 12 puts it. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Certainly it will take great tribulation to humble them and to get them to see their need. But they will. They'll see their need for Jesus. The Lord will return when they repent and he will reestablish his kingdom. Verse 29 continues. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And this has happened in modern Israel. It's it's been a miracle, really. You, You need to realize that A tiny nation like Israel now tops all European nations in gross national product per person. Did you know that Israel's national GNP is $300 billion? Israel is now the breadbasket of Europe. She has the most advanced agricultural technology in the world. Each year Israel is a top 10 leading flower provider. Israel is one of the world's leading technology centers. It harvests minerals from the Dead Sea. It has rich reserves of natural gas. It's a world leader in diamond exports. Much of what the Israelis touch seems to turn to gold. I think God is blessing His people once again. As He returns them to the land, He's blessing them. He's reviving the land. He's he's enriching them. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds. That they were not good, and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations, not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Now obviously this has not yet happened. Israel has not yet repented of their sins. Today its successes are attributed to the Jewish spirit, to their great will to survive not to God's grace. That realization won't occur until the end times. In fact, when we study next week, Ezekiel 38 and 39, we'll see the event in their future that God uses to humble his people and to turn them back to him. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities. And the ruins shall be rebuilt. And everywhere you go in Israel today, you visit cities that have been built built on top of the tails. Or on the ancient ruins. It's exactly what Ezekiel predicted. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Early Zionist pioneers to Israel in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they drained swamps, they stopped erosion, they dug wells, they enriched the soil, they found new forms of irrigation, and they literally transformed this barren land into a Garden of Eden. It's just so impressive to go to Israel today. You should go with me next time. It's impressive to go to Israel and witness the transformation of this ancient land. These once barren fields are now fertile. These once vacant cities are now bustling with traffic, just as Ezekiel said. Verse 36, then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Jerusalem's population would explode during the feast days. Everyone would come up to the temple to worship. But Ezekiel predicts that Jerusalem won't just be crowded on feast days, but a flock of Jews will inhabit Jerusalem every day. Chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Here we arrive at Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. God is about to show the prophet a vision. The Lord told Ezekiel that he was going to regather his people to the land. Now, in chapter 37, he is going to demonstrate how. How that regathering is going to occur. He takes Ezekiel out to an enormous graveyard. It's full, It's a valley full of human skeletons, decaying bones. We're told, then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. Obviously, these bones have been there for a long time. They were brittle bones. And Ezekiel's vision is for the end times, after a long time. After these bones have been lying in the valley for a very long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? That was a tough question for Ezekiel. He's not sure. He doesn't know what God's up to. But I love Ezekiel's response. So I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. How about passing the question? <laughs> Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. God commands Ezekiel to preach to a graveyard of bones. I've heard of pastors complain of having to preach to a dead congregation, but this kind of takes a cake. And thus the Lord God, and thus, and thus says the Lord God to these bones: surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It's often translated wind or spirit. And here the Lord is going to breathe spirit, life, into these skeletons. But it won't happen yet. First, he says, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you. Cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. The toe bone connected to the foot bone, and the foot bone connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone connected to the leg bone. Dim bones started to rattle, started to assemble together, and skeletons began to form. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Once the skeletons had come together, muscle and skin, then were added. This valley is now full of human bodies, but they're not yet alive. There's no breath in them. Verse 9 continues. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And there's no need for us to guess the explanation of this vision, for Ezekiel gives it to us in the next few verses. Verse 11. And then he said to me, Son of man, say... Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. This vision of the dry bones is a restatement of the new covenant. The Jews will be regathered. They'll be regenerated inside. And the rest of the chapter talks about the reestablishment of God's kingdom. But as I said earlier, the importance of this vision is that it explains how the new covenant will come to the house of Israel. And this revival is going to occur in two phases. First, God is going to resurrect a secular nation, He's going to bring to life dry bones. He's going to clothe them with muscle and sinew and flesh. But there'll be no breath in them, no spirit, no life of God. The nation of Israel will be regathered as a sinful state. They still need the breath of God. They need His Spirit in them. Thus, at a later time, God will put His Spirit in them, and Israel will experience the spiritual regeneration of the new covenant. I believe Jesus foreshadowed this in the upper room when he breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. One day the whole nation will receive the Spirit. And if you think about it, this is what is happening in our world today. Today there is a very vocal religious minority in Israel, but the modern state of Israel is a secular state. In fact, Zionism was never a religious movement. Herzl's book, The Jewish State, expresses his own agnosticism and his disdain for the Bible. Herzl envisioned Israel as a secular state run by, and I quote, an immoral band of free thinkers. He even designed a secular flag for Israel before it was changed. And this sums up many of today's Israeli leaders. Oh, they might give lip service to the biblical terminology and themes, but most Israelis are political pragmatists. They don't have much faith in God. They're trusting in themselves. And notice here, these bones, they come together slowly, gradually. Verse 7 puts it, the bones came together bone to bone. They were assembled carefully. And this is how the Jewish nation has been reconstituted. After World War I, the Jewish population in the land of Israel was around 50,000 people. But from there, the numbers have increased over the years. By 1922, there were 83,000 Jews living in Israel. By 1935, the Jewish population had grown to 300,000. By 1948, in the birth of the state of Israel, the Jewish population was 640,000. In 1965, the population had grown to 2.2 million. It was 3.5 million in 1990, and today... There are 6.1 million Jews in Israel. The bones have come together, bone to bone to bone. It's been slowly. It's been gradual. On May 14, 1948, Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, he announced to the world from Tel Aviv that the establishment of the modern state of Israel was now reality. Jews were back in their land. Israel has been reestablished. And that is the first part of Ezekiel's vision. The first part, the gathering up of the bones, the clothing them in flesh, has been fulfilled. Something missing, though. There's no breath. There's no spirit. There's no life of God in these bones. And the second phase is yet to come. Israel has returned to the land, but God has yet to awaken the Jews spiritually. One day, Jesus will breathe on the Jews the Holy Spirit, and He'll cleanse them of their sin. And they'll receive their heart of flesh to replace their heart of stone. Verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, And for all the house of Israel, his companions, remember the nation Israel had divided into two, northern and southern, Judah and Joseph, which was the northern kingdom or Israel. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations. You shall, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. God will reunite the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. He'll reunite them into one nation. And this time it will stick. supposed to be a little play on words because of the two sticks but you know i'm just making sure you're still awake you know when a government increases its taxes it can cause trouble and that's what happened in the days of solomon's son rehoboam he increased the taxes and it created a civil war the nation split the northern ten tribes formed the country of israel or here joseph the southern tribe of judah remained loyal to rehoboam and ezekiel lived under this divided monarchy It existed for 350 years. but When God restores his kingdom in the future, he'll reunite north and south, Israel and Judah. And one king will rule over them. Who will that be? The Messiah, the son of David, will establish his kingdom in Israel. You know, today, Israel is not a kingdom. It's it's not a monarchy. It's a parliamentary democracy. But when Jesus returns, he'll establish the throne of David. And he'll rule as king of kings. And then verse 23. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Again, this doesn't have to actually be David. Some folks think this is a reference to the dynastic title. David, as in the head of the Davidic kingdom or the Davidic dynasty. This happened in Rome with the name Caesar. This happened in Egypt with the name Pharaoh. Over time, the name evolved into a title. And I believe this David here is actually the son of David or the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David, who I believe is Jesus, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Imagine that. Israel, a land of peace. They'll multiply, they'll grow, they'll live in their land, and they'll be at peace. And his tabernacle, his sanctuary, shall also be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This tabernacle or sanctuary is probably the millennial temple about which Ezekiel will have much more to say in chapters 40 through 44. Well, the chapter closes. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. One day, God will again dwell in His temple and His people will be His people forever. What a hope that is. It'll be a testimony to the nations. The God of Israel is truly God. In closing, let me just notice the difference, point out the difference between the Old Testament or the Jewish hope and the New Testament hope of the Christian. Remember, the Jews were waiting for God to come to earth and dwell among His people, whereas we as Christians are waiting to leave this earth and dwell with Jesus.